Welcome to Steel Stories by US Steel. In this podcast, we explore the wealth of knowledge from leading industry experts to help you navigate the infinitely developing, renewable world of steel. Welcome back to Steel Stories, CEO edition. In this episode, U.S. Steel President and CEO Dave Burrett chats with Jim Bullard, the former president of the St. Louis Federal Reserve and the current dean of the Mitchell E. Daniels Jr. School of Business at Purdue University. This is a great conversation about the economy, monetary policy, inflation, and a lot more. I think you'll learn a lot. I know I did. And again, for you fans of what we call the OG Steel Stories, don't worry. We'll be back soon with another episode of your favorite Steel podcast. So enjoy. Hi, everybody. It's great that you're able to join us today. We have a special guest, Jim Bullard. I'm sure you know him. Many of you know that he's been with St. Louis Fed, I think, for a longer period of time than anybody that had held that position. He's had an illustrious career. He really doesn't need much of an introduction. But now, as you can see from his background, he's a dean, what's called the reimagined Mitchell E. Daniels School of Business at Purdue. And he's been there just since late last year. I think it was August 15. So, Jim, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, we're in this deeply cyclical business, so we know the Fed matters. And since you've been there for such a long time and now you're moving in another area, we're very much interested in how did you get into banking and how did you get to where you are now? Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here and I'm looking forward to this discussion. Yeah, I'm a PhD in economics and I joined the research staff at, in St. Louis in the 1990s. And then in 2008, I became president of the bank and I held that position for about 15 years. So the way the Fed works is that there's a board of governors in Washington, D.C., but there are 12 banks around the spread around the country. St. Louis is one of those. If you take the presidents of all the banks and the seven governors in Washington, you get the open market committee. That's the one that you read about in the newspapers. And that's the one that drives policy for the Federal Reserve System. So I was on that for 15 years, and those are the guys that bring you interest rates. So we do a lot with interest rate policy. So I have a mix of uh, academic background, lots of research, lots of papers, but also practical experience in actual policymaking and as a CEO of the bank. The bank itself, St. Louis Fed, is about 1,500 employees. Fed as a whole is about 20, over 20,000 employees, and we run monetary policy and many other things for the U.S. So as CEO, as that, you know, directly responsible for the St. Louis part of the operation, but was also a system executive, so I had dotted line on many other responsibilities across the Federal Reserve System. What an exciting time to be at the Fed, you know, from the, the time of the Great Recession through the pandemic and then the inflation and working through all that. Could you tell us a little bit about how the Fed responded during those times, a little bit of history and bring us up to the present, if you could? I think that everybody would find that very interesting, especially since, as I said, we are so deeply cyclical. We are impacted by virtually every move the Fed makes. Yeah, I was uh, 
just thinking about it as you're talking, the, you know, the run up to the pandemic, as you know, probably from your own experience, was just very fast coming in just days and hours. And you had to make a lot of split second decisions and everything was moving so quickly. And I remember taking a call with my directors. We have a private sector board of directors in St. Louis. And it was pouring rain outside. And I said, well, that's about what's happening here. It's pouring rain. <laughs> and uh, the economy is going to be bad for during March and April of 2020. I do think the Fed, and I give a lot of credit to Chair Powell, did a great job during this period. We, again, things are moving very, very quickly. We had a meeting scheduled on a Tuesday and Wednesday, but we moved it up to a Sunday. We were 48 hours earlier because we thought, couldn't wait till Tuesday, Wednesday to do that. And we lowered the policy rate at that meeting, made many other adjustments. But that was the start of a pretty big policy response that was designed to protect the U.S. economy from further damage other than what you would get from the pandemic itself. And I think that was largely successful. If you look at financial stress index and the St. Louis Fed has a, its own financial stress measure, that you can look at online. Anyone that's listening to this should get the FRED app from the St. Louis Fed. That's the Federal Reserve Economic Data. But you can check out the financial stress index, and it skyrocketed during March and April of 2020. So what could have happened, it was at 2008 levels, the level of financial stress. No one was sure what was going to happen. I'm sure your team wasn't sure you know, what was around the corner. And it could have turned into a financial crisis as well. So you would have had the pandemic and then a financial crisis on top of that. We, that didn't happen. And I think that's because of the very aggressive response of the Federal Reserve. By the time you got to May, June, July, August of 2020, financial stress was back down at pre-pandemic levels. And so we only had one problem to deal with and the, the recovery from the onset of the pandemic. So I think that it's an unsung success of the whole era. And a lot of that was done in conjunction with the U.S. Treasury and the U.S. Congress. I think at that time, there's a lot of unity around the idea that you wanted to get a very good response on the economy side. And you want to do air on the side of doing too much. And then many other things happen later. But I think that initial response will be go down in textbooks as a ideal response to that kind of stressful shock to the economy. Well, you know, you mentioned that because for us, we remember that time very well. I think we hit like $4 a share. It was a yeah. scary, scary time for us. And yet we had so much confidence in the Fed's response that I think it was May or June where we said we were in the process of buying uh, Big River Steel. We had purchased half of it and we made the decision, you know, we're going to go for this. Everybody get ready. We don't know what's going to happen, but get prepared to get this thing done. And we were able to consummate the deal by the end of the year because we believe that things were coming back. And of course, I don't know how this is possible. One month of uh, recession or whatever it was, but you guys really did save the economy. It, it was very impressive. And, I know, and maybe, maybe I drift into that a little bit because you sure get punished a lot with some of the commentary from a lot of people. Is it because well, first, you have to be thick-skinned on the job you have in the Fed, but is it because people don't really understand it? Because then they get into this transitory inflation, and is it, I mean, to me, maybe I'm just dumb, but I always think 
inflation's always transitory. It's a change. So it's going to be yeah. up or down. And so, yeah. you know, how did you get conviction that that was the right thing to do? It was the, the experience you had in 2008 that gave you that strength of getting after it fast? Yeah. By the way, I've toured Big River Steel. Oh, uh, have Northeast you? Ar yes, oh, Northeast great. Arkansas. That was part of my district. One of the most fascinating tours I've ever yeah. taken was all about the, the newer technology that they had there. Fantastic purchase on your part. When I was there, it was right when it was opening, and I think they were profitable in their first month or two, right when they opened. So very impressive. Yeah, so inflation didn't really come until 2021. And so when you're sitting in late 2020 or even the first quarter of 2021, there was really no inflation in the system and, it, and no one was forecasting much inflation at that point. I mean, I had my doubts at that point, but no one really had a forecast that there would be much inflation. When you got to March, April, May of 2021, you started to see the inflation really come on. And that was where the transitory debate really got started. Some people thought that would just be a blip, but by the time you got to June, July, August, it was still there. And then it got much worse in the second half of 2021. And that's really the period when uh, certainly I turned on policy and wanted to get a lot more hawkish a lot faster. And that culminated in the spring of 2022, where we started raising rates. And then we started raising rates very fast, 75 basis points per meeting for four meetings in a row. Jay Powell's uh, speech at Jackson Hole in 2022 was only nine minutes. It only talked about inflation and that we had to get inflation under control. Very impressive. And then I think that that's really what set the tone. Like so many things in your business, any kind of leadership situation, you've got to set the tone. And the tone was the Fed is not going to tolerate inflation above the inflation target. We're going to get it back to the inflation target. And we're going to do it as quickly as possible. And I think that's what that sequence of rate increases really signaled. And lo and behold, by the time you got to the last part of 2021 into 2022, you did see inflation start to come down. Now it's come down quite a ways. And so we've made a lot of progress during 2023. Yeah. Can you talk about, I saw one of your interviews where you talked about the 2% because I'm always one of the, can't you let the inflation just go a little higher? Because that would help, obviously, our business in the short Blast term. I realize that, you know, but, but I heard <laughs> your comments on that, which really resonated with me. And because and I hear other people say that as well. Why do we have to go to 2%? Can't we just two and a half or three? Could you talk about that? Yeah, it's uh, the literature after Volcker. Volcker was in the 1980s, in the early part of the 1980s, and he did get inflation under control, but he did it the hard way. His method was he didn't have any credibility at all when he came in as chair of the Federal Reserve in 1979, and inflation was absolutely skyrocketing, the number one political issue, and he had to raise the policy rate all the way up to 20% at one point, and caused a big recession, and he did bring inflation under control, but that's the hard way to do it. I think the easy way to do it is to make sure you say ahead of time what your inflation target is, and then conduct policy in a way that keeps sending inflation back to that target. Then you don't get into these situations like we got into in the 1970s, but you have to make credibility of that target. If you're going to say that, well, I'll let the target slip, or you know, it's okay for now, or 
I'll tolerate inflation. Then you don't really have a target anymore. And those inflation expectations become unmoored. And this causes more problems than it solves. So I think it's better to, as kind of management 101, set your target and then take steps always to be achieving that. Then everyone knows what the policy is. Everyone can coordinate on that. And then you get the best outcomes for the economy. Yeah. In our speak, we say, what's your mission? Then what are your goals? What are your critical success factors and the actions to achieve that? So it makes a, a whole lot of sense. So the thing that is top of mind for me all the time, and I'm just by nature, always paranoid, you know, and I like the phrase, only Andrew Grove so eloquently said, you know, only the paranoid survive. And I certainly feel like I'm always looking at the downside. And of course, I keep waiting for this recession. In fact, I told my team, get ready for it. It's going to happen. You know, the yield curve, I'm, I'm an old financial guy. So I spent a bit of time looking at that. And I was uh, the CFO at Caterpillar back in uh, 2008. In 2007, our uh, chairman actually is an economic PhD, and he basically said on an earnings call, we're going to have a really deep recession, and he crashed the market, you know, so, but everybody was saying at that time, those four words, it's different this time, and it rarely is, and then I think, you know, soft landing, I don't know that I've ever, you know, I'm pretty old, and I don't remember one, and so I automatically think, well, it's different this time with the yield curve, well, people said that back in 2007, and and, you know, it was going to be this kind of like the developing world was going to keep going strong and the U.S. could come down. It was going to be different. And I keep hearing that. Well, it's, it is different. And now everybody's positioned from, well, you know, the pandemic was the thing that was different. And it really does seem like a soft landing. And then my arguments are, OK, have you thought about the geopolitical stuff? Just look at it at home. Are we going to shut down the economy? You know, we got issues of massive divisiveness. We got the war in Ukraine, the war in the Middle East. We got the Taiwan and, and Chinese potential problems there. And everything just seems a little tense. So I would say all things being the same, okay, yeah, soft landing. But I got to believe something's going to come in in there and send a gust of wind in that's going to set us off course. Now, what we have to do is just be nimble no matter what happens. But it sure does help a cyclical business to know, is it going to get better? Or is it going to get worse? So can you shed some light on, you believe there could be this soft landing or it just, it's like the weather, you can't really predict it a year out. Yeah, I think I'll come back to geopolitical risk, but I do think the policy that we implemented in 2022, you know, was good for U.S. Steel because it was a way to get rid of the inflation, get rid of it relatively quickly and not have a recession. Yeah, we took some risk, I would say. And you were right to tell your team, you know, prepare for the worst and hope for the best. But by taking aggressive action up front, then you could control inflation expectations, make sure inflation expectations were remained at 2%, all the business pricing stays at 2% inflation. And then you, this is what brings the prices under control and you end up back on the path. So I, the way I think about this is divide the post-war era and and our careers and lives into halves uh, and cut it about 1995 or maybe 1985. Before that, the Fed didn't have any credibility. So all these things were happening and inflation was running all over the place. You went off Bretton Woods, all kinds of things. 
and no one knew what to expect. They didn't know what the policy was. They didn't know what the policy was going to be in the future. We got chaos out of that. You had inflation, not just in the U.S., but around the world. And the problem with that was not just that you were putting up with inflation, but that you had an extremely cyclical economy as well. Four recessions in 13 years in the 70s era in the U.S. and just as bad other places around the world. But then in the 90s, especially the Greenspan era, uh, the Fed really established credibility. We hit 2% inflation in 1995, and inflation averaged 2% between 1995 and 2005. So in that era, now you have a lot of credibility. You actually named an inflation target in 2012. You said, we're going to manage to this target. We're going to adjust interest rates up and down according to these variables. Of course, there's a lot of ambiguity around that and stuff, but still, it's far more credible than it was in the 70s. And this has enabled us to say, credibly, we're going to bring the inflation down. There doesn't have to be a recession, but we're going to have much lower inflation than what we had before. That has generally worked. And coming back to the yield curve, I was one that cited the yield curve, especially in 2019, to lower the policy rate, because I was worried about the yield curve signaling recession at that time. But I... <laughs> I'm going to say the most dangerous words that you just uttered. This time is different on the yield curve. I think that the inverted yield curve has been a nominal inversion, the one that we've just experienced and are still experiencing, because markets were expecting quite a bit of inflation over the next two years or one year to two years, but not very much inflation out in years three through 10. So because of that, if you're pricing a 10-year security, you're going to price it differently than you price a two-year security. The two-year would have a much bigger inflation premium in it than the 10-year. And that's enough to explain at least a large chunk of the inversion that's been going on. So I think this is a what I would call a pure nominal inversion, where markets were expecting less inflation in the future than they see today. And because of that, you had inversion in the yield curve. But that's not signaling bad times ahead. That's just signaling that policy is going to be successful in getting inflation back to target. But early on, and I can remember being interviewed and talking about how pleased I was with the Fed's response, because I don't think we had as good a response back in 2008. It just seemed like that was really, really scary, where this was a different kind of scary, but it felt like the Fed had it. And maybe it's just, you can tell me. What you went through before it was like, okay, we got this. We know what needs no, to be I, done. I think two things. One was that the disturbance or the shock in 2008 came from Wall Street itself. So it generated, yeah. you know, came right from the inner circle of U.S. finance. But this time the shock came from distant lands and it was not a financial shock. So that was one thing that helped. And then the other thing, I think, was that all those tools have been developed in the Bernanke era. So some of what we could do was just unpack some of those and try them out and see if they would work this time. And, and a lot of it did work. So I think it was pretty successful. It sounds like you believe we're on the path for a relative soft landing with the caveat, because yeah, you said something about the geopolitical, you kind of set that aside. Oh, I, because sorry, I didn't. That, uh, that's, sorry, I didn't you know, the existential stuff can always. No, no, I think yeah. fundamentally, I do think, well, we really arguably have already made the soft landing, depending on how okay. far you want to go. But 
you know, inflation on a CPI basis, on a 12-month CPI basis, was over 9% at one point. Now it's down to 3%. And unemployment hasn't gone up hardly at all. So it's basically where it was. So basically, that's as good as you can get. You brought 600 basis points down on the inflation rate, no increase in the unemployment rate. So, and I think that trend is going to continue into the first half of 2024 here. So I think we are going to get a soft landing. Now, on the geopolitical side, you're, I mean, two wars going on, you know, first land war in Europe since World War II. I mean, that can blow up at any moment. And some mornings you wake up and you're not sure what the headline is telling you. So I, it's true that there's a lot of geopolitical risk and that's not monetary policy. That's something understand. else that could understand. On the, on the understand. That's a really good policy. point. That's a good point. Of course, we have to consider those things in terms of how we think about this. So sure. it sounds like monetary policy, we should expect a, a soft landing. Then it's, it's more the weather prediction a year from now. What's going to yeah. happen? Is the Ukraine thing going to wrap up? Probably not. Is the Israeli yeah. conflict, is it going to spread? Who really knows? Yeah. I mean, we Back in the day, we really worried about that because of our oil situation. We were so dependent on oil before. The other thing yeah. is if you think about things like housing and all this credit card debt and, you know, all the money that was put in people's pockets. And now it seems like the service is getting much better now because people are coming back to work and we're getting, we're seeing in restaurants, things seem to be better service as well. And they're not you know, having to close early, everything seems to be more normal. But I do worry about the trillion dollars of credit card debt, the housing with the interest rates where they are right now, people are kind of holding on to their housing. And we saw this big increase in housing, but we still got the overhang on the rental property, particularly the, you know, the big buildings where people used to work all the time downtown, where now there's so much hybrid work that people aren't going to be coming back. I think that train's left the station. I think we've all found at the USDO, we work from wherever. We're a lot more productive working from wherever than going into a, you know, a specific desk in our office every day, although it's available to us because you got longer term rent agreements. But all yeah. that kind of stuff just feels like, you know, there's a tension there that's got to be figured out. Could you talk about all that other ancillary stuff that could hurt the landing? Yeah, I would say. The kind of excess savings that households had based on the fiscal policy during the pandemic, I think most of that has been spent down now. So I don't think that's going to be a factor in 2024. I do think, though, that consumers are in good shape, and that's because the labor market is in good shape. The unemployment rate at 3.7% is only two ticks above a 50-year low. Amazing. So, I mean, how good is it going to get? I mean, unemployment insurance claims hovering around 200,000, a ridiculously low number. You've still got more job openings today than you have unemployed people. That's not, was not usually the case between 2009 and 2017 or 18. So I think you've just got this very strong labor market. Usually when people have jobs, then the consumption falls right behind. So we seems like we're in good shape on that dimension. On the housing, I mean, I'd like to hear your views. I, th I think the housing market is puzzling. I think we've undersupplied housing in the U.S. since 2009 because you got, you know, at that point you had too many houses 
and all these builders got burned. And so they're very careful in the decade that followed to not build too much. But now I think we have a kind of a structural shortage. And then you had these very low mortgage rates, especially associated with the pandemic, but even earlier than that, so that when interest rates went up, people don't want to sell their house. As you mentioned, you've got, so that I think is very quirky. That what you're seeing there is that the house prices of the houses that are selling are actually up again, and they were up a lot during the pandemic. So there's many cross currents in that market that I don't think are going to get fully resolved for a long time just because of the way those dynamics work. And then the, I would say on the commercial real estate, I have a couple comments on this. Commercial real estate is actually a big category. And so it's not just tall buildings in Manhattan. It's many other things as uh, strip malls and land and many other kinds of things. So the part that is really the central city buildings, especially the glam cities, the famous cities in America, that's really a pretty small slice of the total commercial real estate package. I think that kind of property is owned by very patient capital, sovereign wealth funds and things like that around pension funds from around the world. They already know that their value of their asset has gone down, but they're also very patient and they'll think about other things that they might do. So I don't really see that being a business cycle kind of concern. It's a concern in the sense that, okay, the world is changing and these buildings aren't going to be as useful as they once were. But on the other hand, is it going to cause a recession in 2024? I don't really think so. I think that's a problem that will unwind over five to 10 years as these owners decide you know, what do they want to do with their, these properties? Well, you're making me a believer. I have to say that was really helpful. Thank you. Because I have been a doom and gloom kind of guy all the time and trying to make sure that we're able to withstand whatever comes our way. But I do sense the optimism in your voice and especially with monetary policy. Now, who knows on the geopolitical side, what happens there, but this is really encouraging. There's one other thing I did want to ask you because when you have a career in banking for, would you say, 15 years, right? And now you do this pivot to something entirely different. Could you talk a little bit about that adaptation and what it's like and how it's going? Because imagine, and I don't pretending what it's like to be in the banking business or what it's like to be in, so I don't know, but I imagine the pace is different. And so how do you think about that and what's it been like for you to make the change? Well, it's been really fun. Purdue's been very welcoming to me, and it's a great project. This uh, school is named after Mitch Daniels, who's the president that just stepped down about one year ago, former governor of Indiana, and well-loved here and across the country. So we've got a great namesake and a great tradition to live up to, build up the Daniels School of Business. You know, there's a great brand here already, which is the Craner. School of Management brand. And the idea of those guys in the 60s when they started it was to take Purdue's technological prowess and mix it with the business school. And they certainly did that. And we're just kind of carrying on that tradition under this rebranding. And I just think there's just so much chance for success here. You know, Purdue is, is about 70% STEM students. Technology just permeates the place and technological innovation permeates the place. 250 patents last year on campus. So just really a lot. So the idea is to, is to blend the 
number four engineering school in the country and the business school and just create a very powerful and different kind of business school than what we've seen around the rest of the country and be distinctive relative to the other great business schools that are out there. Well, I think they're very fortunate to have you in the background you have. It's so impressive and, and really have to thank you for your service really to, to the world because of the things that you help navigate through. It's really impressive and I greatly appreciate you taking the time with our team here to, to share your insights. I'll give you the final word and, you know, any advice you'd like to give us here at U.S. Steel? Well, you're in a cyclical business, but things are looking pretty good for 2024. You should always be prepared in case something goes wrong, but looking pretty good. And so I hope you can have a profitable year and some good outcomes. Well, everybody, that's been Jim Bullard. We're getting to know you a little bit better now. Thank you so very much for your insights. And we look forward to having further discussions with you. And we'll definitely be in touch. All right. Steel Stories is brought to you by U.S. Steel. To find out more about our sustainable steel solutions and how our best for all strategy allows us to re-envision the future alongside our customers, visit www.ussteel.com. Search for U.S. Steel in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. And make sure to hit subscribe so you never miss a future episode. On behalf of the team here at US Steel, thanks for listening.